Hallelujah. Glory to God. Let me begin this morning by apologizing to you for missing last Sunday. I was supposed to do last Sunday as well. Uh, Carolyn and I went to New Orleans to visit our friends Jesse and Kathy Duplantis. And uh, after we came back home, we both picked up something in New Orleans. I think it was that alligator leg Jesse made me eat. I've had alligator tail, and it's good, but alligator leg, I should have known better. That thing was ugly. But Carolyn didn't eat it, and so uh, it apparently was not that. But we picked up something, and boy, it, it knocked us for a loop for about three days. And uh, But I'm much better today. Carolyn is still recovering, and I appreciate your prayers for her, praise God. Amen. It wasn't the coronavirus, but it was something of the devil, for sure. Amen. Praise God. Not praise God for the devil, but praise God that we're recovering. Amen. Hallelujah. Over the last several weeks, I've had something stirring in my spirit, and I was really looking forward to to sharing it with you last Sunday, but I uh, just didn't feel that I could do it justice because I didn't have the strength. And uh, as I said, I was still recovering, and and uh, I didn't I didn't want to force it out of me. I, I like for it to flow, unhindered. Praise God. And so uh, I believe I can do a much better job with it today than I would have been able to last Sunday. So uh, while I'm sharing this, keep me in prayer today as I deliver this word. I believe it is an apostolic message. And uh, uh, I I stand in that office, and I'm believing God for the, the anointing of that office to be administered in both of these services today. In 1964, a group by the name of the Four Seasons, how many of you remember the Four Seasons? They recorded a song called Silence is Golden. But that phrase dates back to the 1800s. They didn't come up with the phrase. It goes all the way back to the 1800s. It literally means to keep one's mouth shut. Amen. Silence is golden. And it is said that to keep one's mouth shut is a great virtue. And in most cases it is. Amen. People need to learn to keep their mouths shut. Especially when they don't know anything. Amen. I remember years ago, Brother Hagen, and it amazes me that I preach in churches today that never even heard of Kenneth Hagin. He was one of my mentors, one of my spiritual fathers. And I, I thank God quite often for the impartation and the impact that he made in my life. He was known as the modern day father of faith and uh, taught some of the greatest lessons on faith that the world's ever heard. And I still listen to them to this day. There's hardly a day goes by that I don't listen to Kenneth Hagin preach some of those old faith messages. And uh, I remember Brother Hagin called a meeting in Tulsa with a group of pastors and ministers of which I was invited to attend. And there were, I don't know, maybe 25 or 30 of us met at a hotel there in, in Tulsa. And Brother Hagin wanted to share some things with us. Well, there used to be a, an old commercial about E.F. Hutton. When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. Well, when Kenneth Hagin spoke, I listened. I was all ears. And um, 
I could hardly wait to hear what he had to tell us because I knew he wouldn't call a meeting like this if it, if it wasn't something that the Spirit of God impressed him to do. And so um, we, we were there, and there were a number of, and, and I was young in the ministry, not as young as some of the other guys that were there, but, but I was young in the ministry. And um, there were men like John Osteen, T.L. Osborne, uh, Kenneth Copeland, and uh, others that had been in the ministry much longer than I had, a very respected group of ministers. And then there were some who were just starting out. And uh, when the meeting started, after Brother Hagin prayed, uh, he began talking, and one of the young ministers just interrupted him and just kind of took over. And he, he talked, and he talked, and he talked. And this spurred on another young minister, and he decided he'd have his say. And this went on and on, and I was somewhat taken back by the audacity to interrupt Kenneth Hagin. And for these young ministers who didn't know much to just take over. And so Brother Hagin just sat there and twiddled his thumbs like he normally does, you know, and, and just was polite and quiet. And, and then finally, when they shut up, uh, he said, do you fellas think it'd be all right if I said something? <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> he was kind and loving. I think I would have slapped him. <laughs> I didn't have any business talking. They, they should have just shut up. That's not what they came for. They were trying to get their latest revelation across. That's not what we came for. We came to hear this prophet of God impart into our lives. And so in that case, silence would have been golden. Amen? There's a lot of preachers that don't have anything to say. They need to just shut up. Thank you for your enthusiasm. I thought, I thought I'd get more amens out of that. I'm amazed at a lot of the young preachers that are coming up today that are not interested in what the fathers have to say. I'll always be interested in what the fathers of the faith have to say. Amen. So, silence is golden in most cases. That's true. But sometimes there comes a time when you need to speak up. You need to speak out. Particularly if it's being impressed by the Holy Spirit. And many of the times in the Bible where somebody uh, that's been raised up by God decides to speak out. It's many times because of the injustice that they see taking place. And I've been quiet for the most part. But I'm deeply disturbed at what's happening in my nation today. I was raised in a home where I was taught as a young boy that we honor God. We honor parents. We honor our country. We honor our flag. I was even taught that even though um, I, didn't, I didn't understand it all fully when I was just a little boy, but I was taught that we honored the man of God. Our pastor. We had a wonderful pastor when I was a kid in a little country Baptist church down at the end of our street. His name was Jerry Smooker. And Brother Smooker was a, a wonderful man. He loved God with all his heart. And uh, I don't think anybody could sneeze in that congregation 
that Brother Smooker didn't hear about it and was at their house praying for them the next morning. And I was taught to honor Brother Smooker. I was taught to, to, to honor fellow man. I was born in Vicksburg, Mississippi in 1946. And at that time, Mississippi was one of the most racist states in the Union. But I was not raised racist. Some of you heard me tell this story, but I think it's worthy of repeating. We lived on a, a gravel road in the country. There was only about four white families on our road. And the others were black families. I played with the black children. They came to our house. I went to their house. One of them who lived just a few, uh, maybe less than a, well, about a half a mile from our house up on a hill. Her name was Miss Daisy. And I played with her boys all the time. And uh, they, they came to our house. And as I said, I went to their house. Miss Daisy was like another mother to me. She was a sweet lady. And I remember after growing up and, and even after uh, surrendering my life to the ministry, my mom and dad had moved back to Mississippi on the farm where, where I was born. And they moved back there for a season. And I went to see them because I was preaching in Meridian, Mississippi. And I stopped in Vicksburg to see my mom and dad. <clears throat> and I asked my, my dad, I said, is Miss Daisy still living? He said, oh, yeah, she's still in the same place she was when you were just a boy. I said, well, I'm going to go up and see her, see if she remembers me. So I drove up to her house. The house looked exactly the same as it did when I was a kid. And now this white-headed lady sitting out on the front porch like I remember her doing so many times, had her apron and she was shelling beans <laughs> and filling that apron up with beans. And she had on these glasses over her nose, you know, and she's shelling her beans. And when I drove up, she looked up over those glasses and threw that apron straight up with the beans going everywhere. When I got out of the car, she said, there's my boy. And I wept. There's my boy. I wasn't raised racist. My grandfather took care of many of the black families on our road. My grandfather had nearly 70 acres. He had cattle. He had uh, hogs, a hundred head of hogs. He had chickens. He had about 25 acres of that property in crops. And when produce came in, he invited the black neighborhood to come and get whatever they needed if they didn't have anything. He gave them hams. He, he cured his own ham. He gave them ham. He gave them beef. He gave them eggs. Growing up, I saw, before we moved from Mississippi to Louisiana, I saw Ku Klux Klan activity on that road. I remember one night sitting in the house, and I heard a lady scream. And I walked out the front door, the screen door, and looked out in the yard, and there was a cross burning in one of the homes of one of the black families just up the road from us. I said to my dad, come see. And he walked out there and saw the cross burning in this yard and people screaming and children crying. And, and then the Ku Klux Klan come walking down our road. And dad went in the house and got his shotgun and came back out in the front yard. 
And when they came toward our house, our house kind of set on a, a, a hill and the road was down below. But when they got even with our house, the man up in front, and they still had their hoods on, the man up in front said to my dad, um, the, my dad grew up being called J.W. It was Jerry Wallace, Savelle, but everybody called him J.W. And the man said, J.W., you didn't see anything. And, and dad recognized his voice. He was with the sheriff's department. And my dad pointed that shotgun at him. And I'm standing there by my dad. And my dad pointed that shotgun at him and said, If you people, if you ever come up here again terrorizing these people, I'll blow your head off. I know who you are. And I was feeling a little brave about then. I was about five or six years old. And I said, we'll kill your dog too, you understand? <laughs> Dad said, get in the house, boy. I said, okay, I'll get in the house. <laughs> but I saw that. And, and I didn't understand. These people hadn't done anything to them. They're just hardworking people. And, and they had a little church between our house and Miss Daisy's house, the black church. And that was the first church I ever went to when I was a boy. My grandpa, he went to the Baptist church about four or five miles down the highway. But grandma liked the black church. She said, it's more lively. So we went, I went with grandma to the black church. And it was. And all those women could dress. My goodness, they wore them hats. Every one of them had a beautiful hat on. And, uh, boy, they could sing. And my grandma loved the, the, the black church. In fact, I had a great big collie dog that looked just like Lassie. Remember Lassie on TV? And, uh, my dog got hit by a car one day and killed him. And the black pastor took my dog. They, they had their own cemetery. And buried my dog in their cemetery. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> I, just, I just didn't understand the hatred. I didn't understand why people were not accepted just because of the color of their skin. Now, when I was growing up, our schools were segregated. I, I never went to school, not in not in grade school or junior high or high school, in college, yes, but I never went to school up to the 12th grade where there was a, a black person in our class. It was segregated. There was a, a, a black high school not too far from the school that I graduated from, and uh, but there was not, not integration didn't take place until later. But my dad worked with black men who did paint and body work. In fact, one of the best painters I ever knew in my life was a black man. He taught me how to paint cars. Herman Washington. I'll never forget him. When I started doing paint and body work. Dad taught me when I was a kid, and that's what I wanted to do all my life. That's all I wanted to do was follow in the footsteps of my dad. And I remember when I went to work for the same Chevrolet dealership that my dad had worked for when I was a little boy. And Dad would take me up there on Saturdays, and I'd watch him and the other body men work on the cars, and then I'd, I'd go into the paint room and watch Herman paint the cars. And Herman would teach me how to paint cars. And I went to work for that same Chevrolet dealership later. And uh, I, I didn't see, I didn't even know if Herman still worked there because he had worked there years before. And I'm working on a car and I saw Herman walk by and he stopped. He looked down at me. 
He pulled his cap off and scratched his head, and he looked down at me again, and he just shouted, Gather around, boys. Mr. Jerry's son is here. He's going to teach you something. <laughs> Herman was a precious man. And then another man that, that painted with my dad and, and painted when I opened my own shop, painted cars for me. His name was R.L. Diggs. R.L. was a precious man. He was like, he was like part of the family, part of our family. We loved R.L. He was a funny man. I didn't grow up racist. And I detest it today. However, I'm not happy with what I see happening in our world today. This is not the America I grew up in. Burning businesses down, killing innocent people is not the answer to this. Terrorizing people is not the answer to this. The only answer is God. Amen. You can't legislate this. I don't care who's in office. You can't legislate it because it's not just a physical, natural problem. It's a spiritual problem. Amen. James says in James chapter 1 verse 19... Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. You would think that it said, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to speak, swift to wrath, and slow to hear. Based on what we see happening in our nation today. People are talking that have no business talking. People are spewing out poison that need to just keep their mouths shut. You know, it's amazing to me that we have people in government today that are supposed to be the greatest minds of our day. And so many of them are of reprobate minds. The Bible says God will eventually turn them over to a reprobate mind. And I think that's already happening. I'll get into that a little, little more here in a few minutes. A reprobate mind. You know, it amazes me how that we have people in government today, people in high-ranking positions today, that want this nation under communist rule. They'd want this nation under socialist rule. I think they have never left the nation and been in a communist nation and been in a socialist nation. I have. I've preached in 46 different nations in 51 years. And several of them were communist and socialist. And if you ever go to one and spend a time there, you will kiss the ground in America when you uh, return. I think maybe we ought to send some of them over there and make them stay at least a year. And then they'd appreciate America more. Now, America has its problems. Don't misunderstand me. America has a lot of problems. And there is a lot of work to be done. Martin Luther Luther King Jr., I don't think would approve of what he sees taking place right now. This is not what he envisioned. 
in how to go about causing equality. This is not what he envisioned. And I, I, I wrote down something that he said, and I want to read it to you. If I can find it in my notes. There comes a time when silence is betrayal. He also said our lives begin to end the day we become silent about things that matter. I can't be silent anymore. James 1.19 once again says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. And he goes on to tell us in chapter 3, in verse 8, that the tongue is unruly, full of deadly poison. The Passion Translation says, unrestrained. And spews out words full of toxic poison. That's what's happening in our world today. I learned from Kenneth Copeland 51 years ago. I remember the first time I heard him say this. I didn't quite understand it at the time. And he said, Jerry, you need to learn the vocabulary of silence. Your problem's your big mouth. I was probably one of the few people who loved him. In our church. <laughs> when he came to Shreveport in 1969, he was not the most loved preacher who ever came to that church. Now, the pastor loved him, but a lot of the people didn't because he was kicking over sacred cows, coming against religious tradition. But it was the greatest thing I'd ever heard. It was the message that changed my life. And now when I ask him, why isn't it working? I'm doing everything you told me to do. Why isn't it working? And he answered by saying, your problem's your big mouth. You need to learn the vocabulary of silence. It made me mad. <clears throat> in fact, I went in my house and got that reel-to-reel tape <clears throat> that I'd been studying of his called The Word of Faith. And I took it outside and I rolled it down the road. And I said, how do you like that, Kenneth Copeland? <clears throat> I went inside to get another tape. And just before I let it go, the Lord said, the answer to your problem is rolling down the street. I said, Lord, did you hear what he said to me? I asked him a question. And he said, my problem's my big mouth and I need to learn the vocabulary of silence. He said, he's right. I said, you got that off Copeland. He said, no, Copeland got that off me. And I ran down the road and got my tape and rolled it back up. You know, it's this big now. And he was right. The Lord gave me supernatural recall of everything that had been coming out of my mouth since I had asked him to meet that need. And I couldn't believe some of the things I had said. One moment I was saying, my God supplies my needs. Next moment I'm saying, I'm going broke, I'm going broke. He was a double-minded man. And the Bible says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And don't let that man expect to receive anything from God. So I learned the vocabulary of silence. Which means if you can't talk the word, shut up. And I've said over the years, one of the wisest investments that the body of Christ could make is a roll of duct tape. And just tear a piece off and put it over your mouth. If you can't talk the word, then just shut up. Amen. But on the other hand, silence is not always golden. In most cases it is, but not always. For instance, in the book of Isaiah chapter 62... Now, in this passage, Isaiah is expressing God's determination to bring to his beloved city, Jerusalem, Zion, restoration. 
and to undo the damage that was done by Nebuchadnezzar and his armies. The people had gotten into sin and rebellion against God. And Isaiah says in Isaiah 62, and I'm reading it from the message translation, regarding Zion, I can't keep my mouth shut. Regarding Jerusalem, I can't hold my tongue until her righteousness blazes down like the sun and her salvation flames up like a torch. Another translation says it this way. It will not be possible to make me shut up. I will talk and not stop talking. I will proclaim and not stop proclaiming. I will preach and not stop preaching. I will shake the skies with my voice. Isaiah is using his voice and his influence to declare what is right in the sight of God. I'm using my voice today to declare what is right in the sight of God. In Matthew chapter 3 and verse 3, this is how it refers to John the Baptist. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Notice John was referred to as the voice. The voice. And he could not remain silent. To To remain silent would have been to be in disobedience against God. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. In other words, I cannot be silent. So in some cases, silence is not always golden. Now, please understand me, I'm in no way comparing myself to John the Baptist nor the Apostle Paul and the assignments that they had. However, I am a voice. 51 years in the ministry, my voice is heard around the world. And I'm, I'm declaring this to you, this congregation, but it will go beyond these walls. Just in a few days, there will be thousands of people who will hear the message. And then pastor friends of mine uh, will, will, will send it to other pastors and it'll go around the world. It's amazing to me. Uh, I've seen on social media sermons that I preach, and 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 some of them will show that there's been 197,000 people heard that sermon, and there was only 200 in the auditorium that day. And over a period of time, more and more people hear it. So I'm a voice. In fact, there, there are pastors all over the world who wait to hear what I have to say and then they preach it to their congregations as I've preached it to you. I'm not trying to be braggadocious in any way, but I, I, know, I know my office. And I know the years that I've dedicated my life to the Lord and to the office of ministry that he's called me into. So once again, over the last several weeks, I've been stirred in my spirit. Acts chapter 17, verse 16, speaking of the apostle Paul, when he arrived in Athens, it says his spirit was stirred in him. When he saw the city holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, given to idolatry. When he saw this entire city given over to idolatry, it stirred him. The Passion says his spirit was deeply troubled. And the Amplified Bible says his spirit was grieved and roused. And roused means provoked to activity. In other words, he couldn't stay silent. When he saw what was taking place. And so what did he do? He went to the synagogue and began to dispute with the religious leaders. In other words, notice he blamed the church for the condition that Athens was in. Wow. Could it be 
the churches that fought again today for the condition that our nation is in. If my people humble themselves and pray. Have they been doing that? Or have we spent more time criticizing? So Paul used his voice to speak out against this. And he didn't go to the city officials to do it. He went to the church. Because he put the blame where the blame should be. We've failed as a church. I'm talking about the body of Christ. The healing of the land is our responsibility. If my people will humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven and I will heal the land. That's what God says. So, once again... If you study Acts chapter 17, you'll notice that even though Paul spoke out against this, his message was not received very well by everyone. And my message today will not be received very well by everyone. I already know that. I'm sure I'll get some ugly letters. But I've already planned not to read them. I don't have time for it. Back in 1964, an American singer-songwriter by the name of Bob Dylan released a new album called The Times They Are A-Changing. How many of you remember Bob Dylan? Many felt that it captured the spirit of social and political upheaval that characterized the 1960s. The 1960s were some turbulent years. How many of you lived through the 1960s? They were some turbulent years. Our nation went through some times like it had never been through before. Well, here we are in 2020, and it could be said once again, the times, they are a-changing. This is not the America I grew up in. It saddens and grieves my spirit. And because of it, I can't remain silent. I agree. This nation has major problems. Racism still exists in our nation today. And some people are going to keep it stirred up as all, as long as they can possibly do so. When I first moved to Texas back in 1970, 71, I was amazed. I, I didn't, in the neighborhood I moved into, it was over near Berry Street because Brother Copeland had a, a small office on Berry Street back in those days. And we needed a house immediately that we could rent because uh, the next day after I arrived here, I'm leaving to travel with Brother Copeland and we'd be gone for three weeks. So I needed to get Carolyn and my two daughters in a place to live because I had to leave the next day. And we didn't know Fort Worth, uh, so we looked at a place over near Berry Street. And the little house that we found that was available, it was available just before they condemned it. <laughs> it was a pitiful place. I'm serious, it was pitiful, but it was all I could afford. And uh, it was $110 a month, <laughs> and I had to put up a $110 deposit, and then I had to have the lights and the, elect the electricity and, you know, and 
and gas and all that turned on. And it took everything I had to get my family in that little house. And I had $3 left over when I got ready to leave for a three-week tour. Brother A.W. Copeland, Brother Copeland's dad, came over and welcomed us to Fort Worth. And uh, he came in the house and saw that we didn't have much furniture. In fact, some of it fell out of the trailer on the way over here. And it was just junk. I was so ashamed, I just left it on actually. <laughs> and uh, we didn't have a refrigerator. We didn't have a stove. And Brother A.W. went to a little place down on McCart Street uh, where they sold used furniture and so forth and bought us an old stove so Carolyn could cook on. It looked like it'd come out of the 1940s. And some people that we had met that went to Harold Nichols Church lived not too far and they came over to welcome us and they saw we didn't have a refrigerator. And they took the little refrigerator out of their camping trailer and brought it to us. And all you could put in there was a carton of milk, some eggs, some bologna. And, and that was about it. And now we're getting, I'm getting ready to leave. And I got $3 to give Carolyn to live on while I'm gone. And she went to Grace Temple the next morning, Sunday morning, and put that $3 in the offering. She said... This does not meet my need, so now it is seed. And she sowed it. And before she she got home that day, she was wearing cut-down maternity dresses. That's all she had because she'd had two babies within 12 months, 13 months of each other. And she just cut down the maternity dresses. And when she got home, she was hanging up that dress and she just happened to reach in the pocket to see if she put anything in the pocket. And somebody had put a $50 bill in there. And she went to church that night and put the tithe in, the offering. God took care of her while I was gone. But my, my point that I was going to make, I was surprised. Because it was mostly a Hispanic area. And I, I had never been around a lot of Hispanic people. Black people, yes. And I was surprised at the prejudice that white people had against Hispanic people when I moved to Texas. I was shocked. So I I saw racism, whites against blacks and whites against Hispanic. I'd never experienced that before. How many of you remember Andre Crouch and the disciples? I met Andre the first time I ever went to California in 1969, late 69, early 70. And he and the disciples were just starting out in their music, Christian music. And we did a a rally together in Canoga Park, California. That's where I met him. And after we moved to Fort Worth, they were invited to come to Dallas and to do a, a concert in a church. And uh, one of the band members that, that I had gotten real close to called me and said, uh, we're in Dallas. Can you and your family come over and be with us tonight? I said, yeah, we'd love to. So we drove to Dallas to this church and and listened to Andre and the disciples and afterwards uh I said, where are you guys staying? They said, uh, we don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? Well, the pastor hasn't arranged to put us up anywhere. It's a white church. And uh, they said, we don't, we don't know where we're staying. I said, well, what are you doing tomorrow? They said, well, we're going to a meeting uh, in Waco, Texas. And I said, well, that's on the way to, uh, I'm, I'm in Fort Worth, that's on the way to Waco. Why don't you guys just come and stay with us? And so they did. They came over and we, we put them on the floor, we put them on the sofa, we put them everywhere we could put them. And the next morning when they got ready to leave, I was shocked 
at some of my neighbors were offended that I had black people staying in my home. Racism is terrible. Some of my closest friends today are African American people. Amen. You ask anybody that knows me well, I detest racism. No, I hate it. There's some things God hates. And I'm like God. I hate racism. In God, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's equality. Did you notice Tony is black? I don't know if anybody's noticed that or not. Tony has traveled with me all over the world. He can tell you, I am not a racist person. I defend that man with my life. He doesn't call me Master, Master, Master Jerry. I wouldn't want him to. There's only one Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't make him serve me. He's chose to serve me. In fact, sometimes he makes me a little uncomfortable. He he goes beyond the call of duty. (laughs) Tony, you don't have to do that. Yes, I do. He's he's an honorable man. Vic. I love Vic. Well, why don't you give me a hug then? <laughs> I love you, buddy. I love you too, sir. I thank the world to this man. Yes, sir. I'd go to bat for him. I believe that too. I got you back. Yes, sir. One of my board of directors is a black man. And he's been on my board for, what, Joe, 35, nearly 40 years going around the world with me. And he knows. He knows that Jerry Seville is not a racist man. I do not like racism. And I don't like people who have a different color skin being treated wrongly. It disturbs me how people are disrespectful to our flag. Once again, I was brought up to honor God, to honor family, to honor our country. I first began reciting the Pledge of Allegiance in the first grade. We did it every morning. How many of you remember those days? Every morning we stood up and we put our right hand over our heart. And we pledge allegiance to the flag. Not only that, when I was growing up, immediately after we pledged allegiance to the flag, we recited the Lord's Prayer. Yes, yes. Amen. That was in school. I was taught to pledge allegiance was to show and to demonstrate loyalty to our flag. And I'm not going to kneel. during the Pledge of Allegiance or during the National Anthem. Charles Barkley, who was a world-famous NBA player, a 
affectionately known as Sir Charles. Very outspoken individual. I was so blessed when I had performed Metal Ark Lemon's homegoing at Charles Barkley Cave. And I asked him, I said, uh, I'm surprised to see you here. I said, I just saw you where you were supposed to be at some special ceremony this weekend. He said, well, I told him I couldn't come. He said, I owe a debt to Metal Ark Lemon. He said, I never had to ride in the back of a bus. I never had to eat in a different restaurant. I never had to stay in a different hotel. Medlark did all that for me, and I've come to honor him. That was, that was brilliant. Just this past week, at the beginning of an NBA game between the uh, New Orleans Pelicans and the Utah Jazz, when they played the national anthem, the players, the coaches, on both teams knelt, but one player didn't. And he was a black man. And Charles Barkley said, because he's an analyst now, NBA analyst, and he said, you can go read it for yourself. Just because he didn't kneel does not make him a bad person. The national anthem means a lot of different things to some people. And to me, I'm not going to kneel, even though I'm against prejudice and I'm against inequality. But I do it in respect for my family who fought for this nation. I come from a long line of people who were willing to lay down their lives for this nation. I want to show you some of them. Take a look at this. They didn't lay down their lives, but they fought for this nation. That's my grandfather, Marvin Amos Savelle. He fought in World War I. Next. That's my dad. He fought in World War II. He was in the invasion of Okinawa, where there were over 12,000 Americans killed and over 50,000 injured. And my dad fought for this nation. Next. That's Carolyn's dad. He fought in Europe. He was injured in the Battle of the Bulge, received a Purple Heart. Next. That's my Uncle Daryl, my mother's brother. Fought in the Philippines with MacArthur. He lost his left leg, blown off. Next. That's my Uncle Bud. My mother's sister's husband. He actually fought during the war, World War II and was did exhibition bouts with Joe Lewis. He said, one man told me who knew my Uncle Bud during that time, told me that was the meanest Indian I ever met in my life. <laughs> he was Mescadera Apache. Next. That's Joe's dad, my Uncle Jim. He was on an aircraft carrier that kamikaze pilots bombed and was injured severely, lost a spleen in that attack. Next. That's me during the Vietnam War. I'm at Fort Dix, New Jersey, AIT. I didn't have to go to Vietnam, but I wanted to represent my country, even though Carolyn and I had just married and she was expecting our first child. Jerry Ann was born while I was on active duties. She was three and a half months old before I ever saw her. 
I come from a long line of people who were willing to fight for this nation. Next. That's all of them. Okay. So I stand in honor of these men. In fact, it doesn't make me a bad person. It doesn't make me prejudiced. It's just the way I was brought up. And if any of you were brought up the same way, and you still feel the same as I do, if you don't, that's no problem. I'm not against you. Dylan, would you come and take our flag? And those of you who still feel it appropriate to stand at the Pledge of Allegiance, would you join me and put your hand over your heart? You don't have to if you, if you don't feel that way, and it, it won't judge you for it. <clears throat> I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. Thank God I'm not living in a communist-controlled government. Thank God I'm not living in a socialist-controlled government. And hopefully I never will. It amazes me of people that are willing to vote for people who want this nation to be under that kind of control. But I'm not one of them. And I certainly hope that you aren't either. What's going on in our nation today shouldn't really surprise us because it was prophesied. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul begins this with verse 1. This know also. Or in other words, this is the way it will be. It's not pleasant, but it is an established fact. This is the way it will be. This know also that in the last days... Perilous times shall come. The Amplified Bible says, Times of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. And the Passion Translation says, The culture of society will become extremely fierce. Extremely fierce. And the word fierce means marked by extreme violence and inclined to react Violently. Do you know the only other time in the Bible that the word fierce is used? It's in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28, where Jesus had entered this region and there came to him two men possessed by devils. And it says they were exceeding fierce so that no man might pass by that way. The Passion Translation says, they were extremely violent that no one felt safe passing through that area. So, where does this spirit come from? Satan. What we see happening in people today, extremely fierce, extremely violent, lawlessness, will be one of the earmarks of the last days. Lawlessness. He goes on to say, in the Passion Translation, that they will lead people further from the truth. And isn't it amazing that today, a lot of people in the world consider this normal behavior. 
Well, if it is, then I'm not normal. I just wanted to make that announcement. The battle we're in today is not just physical. It's a spiritual battle. Jesus even said in Matthew 24, excuse me, verse 24, if, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. The message translation says, will put the wool over the eyes of even those who ought to know better. And it's happening even at this moment. People are being deceived all over this nation and all over the world, I might add. Wickedness, perversion will get even worse. In fact, if you look at what Paul says here, he lists 18 different areas of moral decay that will take place in the last days. And it's happening already. The times, they are changing. However, Isaiah chapter 60 gives us this hope. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and gross darkness the people. Another translation says, deep darkness. Darkness represents Satan's kingdom and Satan's influence on man. So notice, along with darkness comes hatred, lawlessness, evil. And Paul said, know this, it will come. Amen. It will come. People will wax worse, it says. However, the Romans, the Bible says in Romans 5, 20, where sin abounds, grace will much more abound. Whenever sin increases, there's more than enough of God's grace to triumph all the more. Hallelujah. God is not going to allow Satan to destroy this nation. Amen. We need to pray like we've never prayed before. We need to humble ourselves like we've never humbled ourselves before. Isaiah goes on to say, Arise, shine, and be radiant with the glory of the Lord. That's the hope that we bring to this world. That the glory of the Lord will be seen upon us. The goodness of God. The power of God will be seen upon us. In the, in the darkest hour this planet has ever experienced, the glory of the Lord is going to be seen on God's people. And praise God, in the midst of all this darkness, there are multitudes of people that are going to be delivered from it and come into the knowledge of the truth and come into the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. So we need to make our stand and not just sit by idly and watch our nation fall apart. God has a covenant with this nation. It's one of the few nations that stands up for the nation of Israel. And because of that, God will not allow it to be destroyed. This coming election may be the most important election we've ever been involved in. Pray. Vote. 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 Amen. I want to do something in closing today. I would like for all of the African American people in our congregation... To stand up, if you will, please. It blesses me to have you in our church. Amen. Amen. 
Thank you. Thank you for being part of Heritage of Faith. I am deeply honored that you're here. And I give you my word. I will never discriminate against you. And I want to do something that I felt strongly about from the Spirit of God. I want to represent the white society today, the white man, in asking you to receive an apology for being mistreated, for being put down, held back. I was, I was not part of that, but I'm a white man, and white men did it to you. Please forgive us. Please accept my apology in their behalf. And I pray that for the rest of your lives, you will experience the same freedoms, the same blessings that any other people are entitled to. Forgive us. Would you do so? Thank you so very much. You can be seated. Praise God. Amen. Joe, come on up if you will. Joe's got some things he wants to share with you real quick. And uh, once again, thank you for allowing me to impart and release what I had in my heart today. And I trust you receive it in a spirit of love. Amen. Praise God.